0: This morning, and we come lifting up our praises, we come lifting up our requests, we come lifting up our confessions, we come lifting up our sorrows and our pain and grief, we come lifting up our hopes and our dreams, we come interceding for others. And we come with an expectation that not only do you hear our prayers, not only do you receive them like a good father who receives a request from his child, but with an expectation to meet you here this morning, with an expectation to hear from you. And so we pray that your spirit would indeed come, and would indeed speak, that he would fill us up, fall afresh on us, that he would point our eyes to your son and your son only, that we might follow him and in him find life, the life of God. We pray that you would be with us and that you would keep us. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ, who we pray these things. Amen. Well, welcome. I want to thank Michelle for preaching for me last week. Michelle, though, did make one horrible mistake that I have tried to correct and will try to correct when we go on into the future, which is there's an unwritten rule. We are very gifted as a congregation. We've got lots of people who can step in and preach when I'm gone and and do uh, a great job, usually a better job than I can do. And There's an unwritten rule, though, however, Michelle, that you have to preach longer than I normally preach so that it doesn't seem like a letdown as much when I get back. And so let's say I average like a 40-minute sermon. And sometimes it's a little longer, and sometimes it's like 40 minutes. Michelle goes 22 minutes last week, okay? I'm listening to this, like, wait, where's the rest of it? This is not, I can't come back. Um, So we'll put that in the contract going forward. Um, This week I uh, was at a school And was approached by a superintendent who I knew. uh, We had met before. We had talked before. I'm assuming he wouldn't have known my name off the bat, but you know, probably would have figured it out if uh, he had um, been told a few facts. Um, But I knew his name, and he approached me and said, "Hey, I'm really enjoying your book," which is interesting to say because I have not written a book. It's not out there. I'm glad he enjoyed it, Um, and. I assumed, though, because I had met this man, and we had talked before um, and, uh, during our conversation before, we talked about the fact that I'm writing a book. So I assumed he misspoke and didn't want to correct his first statement to me in a conversation and make it kind of awkward, right? So I just kind of went along with it. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, thank you for that. I'm glad. And we talk, and we talk. And about four or five minutes later, well into the conversation, he asked me about this TV show I'm producing. At which case, I realize I am not who he thinks that I am. Coming to find out, he thinks I am a much more famous Christian celebrity, um, a guy named Jeremiah Johnston, who a colleague of mine at Houston Baptist University. And by much more famous Christian celebrity, I mean famous Christian celebrity, <laughs> um, someone with a name and reputation. Um, but for that moment, right, I had that that sense of, I was somebody, <laughs> and somebody who was somebody, right? The superintendent, lots of power, everyone knows his name. He knew me, and I think we all have this desire to not only know people, but to be known by people, and there's that special, almost prideful sense when we're known by people that other people know right when we when we have this kind of status affirming relationship with somebody else, well, as we read in the Sermon on the Mount and continue going through the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we're going to see Jesus talk about this concept of knowing and being known. so if you have your Bible open up with me to Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven is where we will be. This is I believe part twenty of our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. It is the King's Speech, one of Jesus' most famous sermons on what it means to follow Him, what it means to be a disciple. And this is our second to last sermon for this series, which is kind of sad as we come to wrap it up. Uh, so we'll read together this morning. We'll see that Jesus makes it clear that this desire we have to to know others and be known by others Um, that there's actually nothing more important than to know Jesus and to be known by Jesus, as we read in Matthew 7, verse 15. Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He continues, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is a tough passage. We've talked about this as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has given us a lot of commands about how to live our life. Some of them have been tougher than others. He's given us some encouragement about not being anxious and trusting the Father. He's taught us how to do certain things, how to pray. And as he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he ends with three warnings. Three warnings about what might happen in terms of our response to his speech, to his sermon, to his invitation to follow him. This is the second of those three warnings. They all have... A metaphor, here are the metaphors of a tree bearing fruit, good fruit or bad fruit. If you remember, two weeks ago, the first warning of these three was a gate and a way. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Few will go through it, and the path will be hard, but its end is life. Whereas he says, don't go through the broad gate, the wide gate, where most people will go where the path is very easy, but where the end is destruction. Here now we get our second of these three warnings. It's a challenging and honestly kind of a scary passage. It's also the longest and most complicated of the three warnings. So when we see our very last warning next week, we'll see it's a much simpler kind of parable. Um, It's a little easier to dissect. Um, The main point, it seems here, from this passage, is that we need to be careful about who we listen to. He says, beware of false prophets. And we need to be careful about our own choices and lifestyles so that we can be sure that we know Jesus and are known by him. It seems here that Jesus is suggesting that it's easy to be deceived. Beware of false prophets because they can lead you astray. And it seems Jesus is suggesting it's easy for us to deceive ourselves. Beware of the choices you're making because you might deceive yourself. I mean the the people at the end here, verses twenty one through twenty three, which is just a scary passage to me. I don't I don't know another adjective for it. They seem they seem surprised when Jesus says, I don't know you. And and they have a resume. I mean, this is perhaps the scary part about it. Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your name. I'm like, I don't really even match up to that. And Jesus is going, get away from me. I don't know you. That's a pretty like heavy spiritual resume. And Most of us are like, I went to church. Um, you know, I tithed. I was a good person. There's that one time I invited someone to Easter. <laughs> These people on this last day of judgment come to Jesus with this big resume, but they've been, they've been deceived. And so let's look at it in both parts. Um, people who deceive us, false prophets, and then perhaps the ability to deceive ourselves. We start here with Jesus' warning. He says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. He says, beware of people who are going to deceive you or mislead you. Um, it's often not easy to tell who they are. Um, it's often uh, a disguise put on by them, uh, and so he says, Look instead at their lifestyle, look instead at their character. Now there's a lot of um, places in the Bible where false prophets and false teachers are talked about. This is a big theme in the Old Testament. Jesus is drawing on a lot of warnings that we find in the Old Testament about false prophets and false teachers. These are people who claimed to talk for God, but were not actually talking for God. They were talking for self-gain or for some other political or personal uh, financial, perhaps, reason. Usually, these false prophets were people who were tickling the ears of the people. That's typically the sign of a false prophet in the Old Testament, It's the person telling the people of God what they want to hear rather than what God wants them to hear. We've said before and we'll say again, if God's opinions always match your opinions, then maybe it's not God you worship, but yourself, right? Maybe every now and then your opinion, your view, your side of an issue should be challenged by what you find in the scriptures and not just simply very basically kind of reaffirmed. I will say this as well, which I think is an insightful point. Um, There's a way that you can tickle people's ears, not just by saying nice things to them. So in the Old Testament, you have prophets, real prophets, sent by God, who say, don't listen to these false prophets who would come to the congregations and say, peace, peace. When instead, destruction was coming because of their disobedience. But the people didn't want to hear that they had been disobedient. They didn't want to hear that they needed to live differently. They certainly didn't want to hear that they were going to be destroyed, and so they chose to listen to the the, the nice preachers. They chose to listen to the, the, the easier preachers. That's one way you can tickle people's ears and in the Old Testament be a false teacher. There's another way. It's more subtle, I believe. But it It's to convict people of the right things and only the certain right things. So there's the way in which a tribe or a group of people all agree that a certain group of things are bad and wrong. And as long as we stick to pointing those things out, our ears are being tickled. We can be convicted... But it just has to be about the same sort of subtly not written down rules about what we're allowed to be convicted about and not be convicted about. So perhaps we can be convicted about the fact that we watch too much TV, we spend too much time on our cell phones, but not about our vacation home. I was preaching last week at a church in Pearland. And I happen to use that as an example. And there are people at our church who have vacation homes. And so I'm not saying that's like your automatic ticket to hell. Um, You know, in my experience, the people I know with vacation homes let me use their vacation homes. And so I think God is very pleased. Um, I just simply mentioned, right, that perhaps a Christian who understood the call to sacrifice, might give up more of their money to the poor instead of buying the third or fourth vacation house. And you could hear gasp, and I could see the looks on the people's faces who had the third and fourth vacation house. And they were not happy. I mean, they really, uh, they glared at me the rest of the service. And I was like, I found them, right? We can be convicted of certain things, just there are certain things you don't touch. And that's another kind of subtle way of tickling people's ears. Now, in the Old Testament, what you're supposed to do with false prophets is just wait them out. Wait and see. So if the prophet says, peace, peace, y'all are doing everything fine, God's judgment is not coming upon you, And then there's another guy saying, hey, y'all really are doing things wrong. You're not loving each other. You're not showing mercy. You're not welcoming the refugees and the aliens since you were once refugees and aliens and God's judgment is coming upon you. Eventually, something happens and we see who's right and who's wrong. And often it was the prophets who said, y'all need to repent and follow God's commandments. And so once a prophet was wrong, it was proven that they were a false prophet. It's interesting, my very first year to teach a full high school Bible class was two thousand twelve, um, which was the year where there's the prediction of a rapture um one of many and it's it was it kind of lined up perfectly because the 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 uh, predicted date of said rapture was during our segment, our unit on the book of Revelation, which is about kind of the same kind of topic. So I couldn't have done this better, right, cosmically. I mean, I, the whole calendar yearly, this was the best lesson plan. Um And as we were studying, most students were surprised to find out that the man who had started this prediction, and it actually was very big, it was a very large movement, people sold their homes, they took their kids out of school, lots of lots and lots of things were, were, were horribly done because of this not horribly, were dangerously done, were harmfully done to people because of this. Um, The students were surprised to find out that that same man had already done things like this. 20 years before, he had made a similar prediction, a similar movement. And then 15 years before that, he had made a similar prediction and a similar movement. In the Old Testament, you get one shot. (laughs) We, I guess, have a little bit better uh, sense of forgiveness in terms of prophets, and predictions. Um, But in the Old Testament, that was what you did. You waited, and you see. Now, the New Testament as well talks about false teachers and false prophets. Paul will go into a city. He'll set up a church. and We're told people will follow him, and they'll try to undermine his teachings. They'll try to teach a different gospel. Um, Jesus here talks about it, and he gives us a more kind of graphic and perhaps quicker way to determine whether someone is a false teacher or a false prophet or whether they are not and the, 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 the kind of litmus test that he gives us is their lifestyle. He says, look at them, recognize them by their fruits, by the way that they live. A false prophet would be someone who is a, a gifted leader who doesn't do God's will in the ordinary elements of their life. It would be someone who exercises gifts of the Spirit with the flourish, but they flounder at a personal level, when it comes to following Jesus. God's will in Jesus is this double love commandment, love God and love others. God's will in Jesus is what we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And a a false prophet, a false teacher, is not so much somebody who is saying something that's wrong about God, at least in this context. It's someone who is unable to live out what they're saying about God, which interestingly enough, um, we have the sexual harassment. If you follow the the news cycle, um, revelations that keep coming out about different celebrities and and different politicians and 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 people like that. And the question inevitably comes up: Right, can you separate the art from the person? Um, so, can you appreciate somebody's comedy? If you find out later that they were serial rapists, right? I mean, are those two separate things or is it no longer funny anymore? Um, just because you know that that's what they were doing at the time. The early Christians were pretty clear that if you weren't following a Christian lifestyle, like if you, if you didn't know Jesus personally, it was very difficult for you to know or communicate the truth about Jesus in terms of ideas and doctrine. The two went together together. But unfortunately, we have false prophets still today, I think, that get up and, and they can flourish on stage and with lights and they can raise money, and yet they have a hard time following these commandments in, in, in real life. Um, one, one way of uh, translating this passage is this be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are that they're out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Instead, look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees and their bad apples will one day be chopped down and burned. I think this is an interesting way of getting at what Jesus is trying to say here. Again, I don't think Jesus is particularly talking about what we would talk about as heresy, false teachings, wrong ideas. Um, You cannot be a religious leader and speak about God uh, in the age of social media without being called a false teacher and a false prophet multiple, multiple times. So right here, okay, just so that all of you know, I've had people say that I'm a false teacher and a false prophet, more times than I can count. If I can't even ask questions on Facebook, like neutral questions on Facebook without getting people telling me that I'm a false teacher, okay? What's interesting is, in the Scriptures, we're never told to witch-hunt false teachers. What does Jesus say here? You just beware. Notice them. Be discerning about it. Don't get out the tar and the feathers. Don't light the fire. Be be discerning about who is the false teacher or not. What I've found is what most people, when, when they knee-jerk react against somebody asking a question or somebody introducing a new idea, is their knee-jerk reaction is... And, and why they might use words like heresy or heretic or false prophet, is it's simply because it's something that they were not taught in their tribe, in their community. It was not part of their Sunday school upbringing. It was not in their family. It was, not, it was not language that they're used to. Part of my education as I got into grad school, and part of what I teach at the university, is the diversity of the church global. And it's hard to be exposed to how diverse the thinking of the church has been across the centuries and how diverse the church is even today and still have a narrow-minded approach to know only what I think and what I've heard is the truth. There's some humbleness, I think, here. I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying hunt out all the heresy I think he's just saying, no, use discernment. Beware that they're out there and they're misleading you. And so in a community, you should discern amongst yourself whether things are true or not true. You should look for leaders who have character and follow Jesus on their in their personal life, on a personal level. You don't actually really need to worry too much about false prophets because you have the true prophet right here, giving you the way to life, right? And we have the Scriptures. Um, but it takes discernment among a community together um, to, to be able to do this. Um, so we have patience, um, and can have patience with these false teachers. Um, they will be revealed eventually. That Both the analogy and the next passage, I think, point towards that. So, you might have a tree that grows, but you might not know what type of fruit will come out of that tree for a while. I've known celebrities that rise up in the Christian world, preachers, and from the beginning I've said something's off. I don't think what they're saying is quite true. I don't like the way they say it, I don't like the kind of people that they produce. Who, who follow them and listen to them. And then, in my experience, within about a decade, a scandal emerges. And they're fired. They were stealing money from the church. Or they had an affair. Or they had an ego and thought they were God and were bullying everybody around them. It might not be obvious right away. They might have a good disguise. But there's this eventualness to the revelation that they're a false prophet. And it might even last all the way to the final judgment on this last day that Jesus is talking about. Um, There's a parable later on in Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, where Jesus talks about uh, Christians and non-Christians growing up together, but both being... Um, talked about as followers of Jesus and, you know, trying to separate and see who's a real follower, who's not a real follower. And he, he talks about wheat and weeds growing up. And historically, there's this point at time during the Reformation where you got the Catholics, you got the Protestant reformers, and then you got a more radical group of reformers called the Anabaptists. And at one point, the only thing that the Catholics and Protestants could agree upon is that the Anabaptists should die. They, they all hated the Anabaptists. And they used scriptures like this parable to justify their kind of witch hunt of this heresy. So they'd say, Anabaptists, y'all are so upturning things and so misreading scripture, which, by the way, we were patient. And today, most Christians would say they actually had it right. They actually were reading scripture correctly. It's a good thing we didn't kill all of them. It's a good thing the tradition carried on. But very creatively, the Anabaptists came back to the Catholics and Protestants and said, read that parable closely. Don't y'all care about the Bible? The parable doesn't say for you to take out a weed eater and start cutting out the weeds. The parable says they both grow up, and then God will determine them at the end of the time. It's not up to you. And it's a very kind of historically creative twist and use of kind of political, historical exegesis, um, where the Anabaptists take scripture being used against them and say, read it more closely, and you'd realize even you are being disobedient to that scripture. Even if we're wrong, even if we're the weeds, you should be letting us grow up. Um, I find that fascinating. So there's our first one. Don't, Don't be deceived by somebody. Because it's so important to know and be known by Jesus. And the second thing is, don't be deceived by ourselves. Don't be surprised by our own decisions and lifestyles. We'll read just one more time together. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who gets into the kingdom? It's not those who say, Lord, Lord. It's not those who have some... Some right phrase. It's what? The person who does the right things. Who does the will of the Father. Now, as Protestants, we get nervous here because we'd like Jesus to say things with more nuance. We'd like Jesus to say here, the people who get in are those who are saved by grace, and then because of that grace, they naturally do the will of my Father. That's what we would say, right? We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. But that grace always produces itself in works. The scriptures are very clear. The final judgment is based on works. We're saved by grace, but we're judged by our works. It's passage after passage after passage after passage. Jesus himself says it on multiple occasions. And again, the theological reason is because once we meet Jesus and have the Holy Spirit, we're so transformed that we do do the will of the Father. But what is the will of the Father? It's what Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's to be honest. It's to be forgiving. It's to be loving. It's to be righteous. It's to be generous. Those are the people entering. And he says, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things prophesy Cast out demons, mighty works, all in your name, and I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let me point out just two things for you here in this passage. The the phrase new, that language new is is very meaningful in the scriptures. So the thought that the scriptures to know somebody means to have a very intimate relationship, a mutual relationship with them. In fact, it can be used to describe sexual relationships. Adam knew Eve, and they bore a child. And throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, when we're told that God knows his people, we should read more than just he like, intellectually recognizes his people, right? No, he's in a covenant with his people. He's in a relationship with his people. When Jesus here says, I don't know you, he's not just saying, like, I don't recognize you. I don't remember your name. He's saying, we were never in this this covenant relationship together. You You might have done some things on my behalf. You might have gotten a stage. You might have built a building. You might have made a career. But where were we? When did we talk? When did you decide to follow me? When did you walk the narrow gate in the hard path? When did you spiritually transform your life? I, I don't know. I don't know you. We haven't had this covenant relationship. It's interesting because this last phrase here, Jesus says, I'll declare to them, And then you see a quote in your Bible. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you paid careful attention, this is from our scripture reading today. In Psalm 6. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you learn a new word, and then every day for the rest of the week you hear that word like three times. Well, so we're in a, I'm teaching a class on the Psalms right now. And so, of course, I'm seeing the Psalms everywhere, right? And over the past couple of weeks... I've read and and seen some studies about how much certain psalms influence a lot of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't know this, but again, right, just because I'm studying the psalms, here it is. Jesus quotes Psalm 6. Let's go read that psalm again together just to familiarize each other with it. Psalm chapter 6 here. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the the context here when Jesus is quoting this? Psalm chapter 6 reads this way, the psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol, who will give you praise. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord Has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The psalm that Jesus is talking about is a psalm where the person comes to the Lord and says, Don't rebuke me for my sin. Instead, show me your steadfast love transform me. I want to repent. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want to come into covenant relationship with you. This is what the sermon has been about all along, this kind of internal versus external righteousness. Not just coming to church, practicing spiritual disciplines without the week, Not just not murdering people, but rooting out anger inside of us. Not just not not just swearing right but but being so honest that we don't even have to swear not just loving the people who are nice to us also loving our enemies praying not for applause but praying just for the father being so generous that even the rest of our body doesn't even know how generous we're being because we're not doing it for applause This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, The will of my father. And those who who don't do that, he says, I never knew you. We were never in this covenant relationship. At the judgment, I don't think Jesus is going to ask us about our gifts. I don't think Jesus is gonna ask me about what he thinks my best sermon ever was. I don't think that's I don't think he's gonna say, give me a resume. Let's let's see this here. What was your best intro? What was your best joke? I don't think I don't think Jesus is going to say how provocative were you on social media. I don't think Jesus is going to say when the book is eventually out, right? How great was that writing? I think Jesus is going to say Hey, when I was naked, did you clothe me? And when I was hungry, did you feed me? Because if you did, I recognize you. But if you walked by me, I don't, I, don't, I don't recognize you. We never had that conversation. We never had that relationship. I don't think Jesus is going to ask us about our, our flashy, flourished gifts. I think he's going to ask if we've ever held a person mourning and simply cried with them. I think he's going to ask us if we ever held the hands of people as they endure pain and sit through treatments of chemo. I think he's going to ask us if we did use the gifts that we've been given, but for those who needed them the most, and not for our own applause and praise and ego and pride. To follow Jesus is to get to know him. And as we follow Jesus, we find that we become known by him and that that's where life is. And there's nothing more important than to know and to be known by Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the time that you have given us this morning. I thank you for the scriptures that you have blessed us with. I thank you for the recordings that we have of Jesus' teachings that we can still study and learn from. I pray that you would challenge us constantly to be a people who um, follow you, be a people who seek to know you, and be a people who are known by you. I pray that even today in worship, in, in this Worship service that we would encounter you in such a way that we leave knowing and being known by you even more fully. We know that in you is life and life eternal, and so we come to you for life. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we pray these things. Amen. We will now participate.